Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. It's disingenuous to suggest that somehow sanctions can't be circumvented by crypto. Regulators still have huge amounts to do to be able to harmonise a global framework and be able to crack down. Today's episode is a special one, produced in association with Comply Advantage, a UK headquartered technology firm providing global financial services companies with the tools to counteract financial crime. Today's guest explains how companies can best use their sanctions compliance processes to gain a competitive advantage, and he details what could be done to prevent cryptocurrencies from being used as a sanctions evasion tool. He also outlines how lawmakers and regulators risk alienating new businesses from coming into the UK, and the actions they could take to ensure the country's financial services sector remains globally relevant. Charlie Delenpol is a former JP Morgan banker turned technology entrepreneur. In 2010, he set up Market Finance, a corporate financial solutions company which raised $59 million in funding, before Delenpol's departure in 2014 to become founder and CEO at Comply Advantage. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to Following the Rules. It's awesome to be here, Lucy. Let's start with a brief introduction. For those listeners who might not be familiar with Comply Advantage, could you give us a brief run through of what services you provide and to who? Yeah, so primarily we are a database of bad people. What we're doing is using machine learning and artificial intelligence to automatically collate a database of roughly 15 million high-risk people and companies. So at the very basics, people who are sanctioned, but then extending to people involved in money laundering, terrorist financing, people who have done something bad that's been reported, people who are politically exposed. And we're gradually expanding that to every person and company in the world that's of interest in every type of risk, basically. And then around that, we have various things like transaction monitoring and payment screening. And we now work with one and a half thousand fintech bank payment companies all over the world. And so when it comes to helping companies to follow the rules, we think we're squarely at the center of that. Okay. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine triggered a pace of sanctions unlike anything we've seen before. And that's introduced a whole plethora of challenges for financial services firms looking to stay compliant, many of which I was surprised to hear at the time were still doing their sanctions checks via spreadsheets, a very manual of processes. Now, six months into the conflict, to what extent have financial services firms that were quite reliant on manual processes got up to speed at this point? The whole process of understanding which of your millions of clients are potentially sanctioned or relatives and associates of sanctions i think it's one of the hardest challenges which requires a huge amount of technology and automation to solve the problems for many people sanctions weren't really a thing they understood until the russian invasion of ukraine and we've seen the wholesale step change in terms of the breadth depth intensity of sanctions in the past few months so what that means for my advantage is we have thousands of companies who in turn some have many millions of clients each who each in turn need to determine if those people are specifically members of say the Russian Duma who authorized the invasion of Ukraine or links to the Russian paramilitary group, the Wagner group who have been a quasi army and security force in Ukraine and the key part of the invasion. So 
with the profusion of different mechanisms and channels of funding, companies need to be more and more aware of whether or not they are being co-opted in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We help companies with all that complexity. The actual issue of sanctions impacts companies in many ways. If you're, say, a crypto firm and you're onboarding 20 million clients a year and then you have to monitor those clients, then if you have a very manual process, then you'll be very slow to onboard clients and therefore there's a direct revenue impact. Versus if you have, say, 50% of your entire company involved in ongoing checks, the operational overhead of sanctions compliance and the potential threat of fines versus the speed of onboarding means that it is one of the key parts of running a finance company. Allied with the marketing and more consumer action based running a finance company, the key dimension of risk compliance today probably is less credit and less anything else and more to do with how you avoid inadvertently laundering money or inadvertently falling foul of the regulators. So it's only becoming more and more critical as public intensity or feeling against these kind of moral transgressions occurs. And therefore, yeah, it's obviously a subject that we could talk about for hours, but the short answer is that it's only becoming more and more challenging as time goes on. My understanding of what you've just said is that sanctions compliance has risen up the list of priorities for full financial services firms. And therefore, although compliance in general is challenging, their processes are, to a larger extent, better than they were. I'd say that it's become a kind of locus of competitive advantage to be able to do this particularly well because of the cost of not onboarding clients quickly. As finance becomes more competitive, if one firm you apply for, say, insurance or for opening bank account gets back to you immediately, versus another one takes two weeks to manually review different processes, then obviously as a customer, you will have a huge incentive to go on the one that allows you to go quickly. So in one respect, that means that the companies that flout the regulations will have a short-term advantage, but then companies that say are shut down and get out of business will have a much more difficult time doing business in the broader scheme of things. So it doesn't specifically have, have different companies automated the processes. I think where it makes compelling financial sense, absolutely. I think for those kind of smaller law firms that only have a handful of clients, perhaps they haven't got the scale of technology to be able to invest thoroughly in that. But then sanctions obviously is only one dimension of running a risk team in terms of you need to understand not only is this person bad, but is this person the person they say they are. So it bleeds into the issues of things like identity and fraud. And then if a loan goes bad, that could be because, say, the person is the wrong person you thought they were, or perhaps they're a fraudster. So the whole money laundering, terrorist financing dimension of things is always going to be broadly tied up with the much more challenging dimensions of identity, credit, fraud, and AML. Mm -hmm. I think the optimal processes are constantly evolving in terms of if, say, someone onboards onto your company and is then able to transact, it could be that that person is indeed a fraudster or indeed a money launderer. And so all that person is able to then disperse a whole range of loans. I've had names personally set up in Barclays under Charles Abdul Qadir Dellingpole, who then bought 10 iPhones under my credit account, right? And that person wasn't trying to move money or wasn't trying to facilitate payments to illegal terrorist groups or to politically exposed persons. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of not just sanctions, but the broader issues around, is that person involved in, say, the government? Or has that person got a track record of fraud publicly? Are they linked to the mafia? So 
the actual surface area of this challenge in terms of risk and fraud is far broader than it immediately seems apparent. Okay, could you summarise what best practice looks like in relation to sanctions compliance? So the key thing is when you onboard a customer, if that's a personal company, you need to determine is this person subject to an asset freeze travel ban? And then once they're onboarded, you need to then monitor them. But when they first became a client, they weren't a sanctioned entity, but now they are, right? So you can't flout the regulations. And if there is an asset freeze and travel ban on a person, you can't then have an account open for them. So that's the core thing. But then there are various policies around the level of diligence and resources you invest in screening a a specific person. So if a person's doing very low level, say £100 a day or payments versus a million pounds a day, then obviously you want to divert more and more resources to adopting a risk-based approach. So if the risks and consequences of a particular client transacting with you are much higher because of the sheer volume or the nature of the payments, then you need to invest more resources, often dependent upon the level of profitability that they're making as well, right? So that's the core and it gets more complex from there. The reason I started the company was that there were huge gaps in terms of data being collected. Most of the systems that are out there now rely on human researchers to go and manually collate all the information, all the data. And there's huge gaps in terms of the underlying databases. So our mission with MoArtage is to try and build a system capable of not having those gaps, particularly when it comes to things like name screening in terms of is this Lucy McNulty the same person who led a terrorist attack? Or with things like adverse media, you have this issue around, say, Lionel Messi terrorised the defence and shot at goal is fine because he's a footballer. But then if it says Lionel Messi led a terrorist attack and then shot the policeman, that's not fine. You have billions of pages of content and information and 9 billion people circulating around the world with hundreds of millions of companies and all interlinked, all doing different activities, all different spellings, could be an Arabic name. You have thousands of people with the same names and you need to know when you're opening a business precisely, is that person a threat to me? So it's never ending process of incremental improvement. It's not simple and it's not going away. Okay. What can lawmakers do to mitigate issues financial services firms have with sanctions compliance? There were a lot of complaints earlier in the year around the myriad approaches that lawmakers were taking to this issue. There were various different laws being introduced or laws being followed to issue sanctions and they each had their own nuances and that was a huge headache for financial services firms. To what extent is that still the case? To what extent could lawmakers address those issues? Yeah, we saw a whole range of new laws come in, the kind of statutory instruments that were used to legally implement sanctions and the guidance in terms of what to do if, say, a shareholder of a company that you're a co-investor in is sanctioned, or if you've got money out to an entity that's already sanctioned, are you able to repay it? Because of the number of companies that were sanctioned and the breadth of companies that were sanctioned, there was a huge amount of complexity and companies and people found it very, very challenging to adhere to those rules. I think that was more a consequence of the huge breadth of sanctions and the pace and intensity with which they implemented. So hopefully now it's slightly simpler and companies will hang on that. But then in the UK, what we saw was on the 15th of June, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation post-Brexit 
is now able to impose a civil monetary penalty. It basically means that the burden of proof is different. So basically, you, you knowingly need to know that you breached sanctions regulation or sent money to someone who was sanctioned. No longer is it a sufficient defence to say, I didn't realise that person was a Russian foreign minister and they were sort of an asset reason travel ban. And therefore, it's much easier for companies to be fined and prosecuted under this regime. And what we've seen in terms of what lawmakers have been doing in the past like 20 years since 9-11, since every scandal, you've seen this constant wave of tightening the net in terms of which professional groups and which institutions are brought into this scheme has widened. The threshold for fines has been reduced lawmakers are constantly innovating in terms of what can be defined, what can be regulated. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're speaking not long after the cryptocurrency exchange Kraken has been reported to be under investigation by US authorities for a possible breach of US sanctions. And this is US sanctions generally, it's not specifically related to Russia. But there were concerns following the introduction of the Russian sanctions that crypto firms could be used to circumvent them. To what extent does that concern you? So if you ask exchanges directly, is crypto a threat in terms of sanctions evasion? They will always say no. And they'll always say, actually, the blockchain is far more transparent because you can see every transaction and you can investigate. Whereas centralized finance doesn't have that same threat or risk. I think that probably isn't true. And I think crypto is a huge vector for potential risk in terms of money laundering, tariff financing, and sanctions evasions. In terms of its ability to transfer money all around the world in terms of the global nature of it, in terms of the different levels of anonymity. Often you don't know the actual underlying wallet holder and you might not really understand where the money is being exfiltrated, precisely who the money is going to as well. So it's disingenuous to suggest that somehow sanctions can't be circumvented by crypto. And you also saw after the imposition of the sanctions legislation, huge volumes of crypto being transacted in areas where it could be suspected, like the former CIS geographically, that the sanctions were being used or at least evaded by crypto firms. So regulators still have huge amounts to do to be able to harmonize the global framework and be able to crack down, particularly in jurisdictions where their regulations aren't as well enforced as in the UK or US. Because this does come as regulators globally in the process of determining whether or not or how best to regulate crypto. What do you expect on that front? And how can financial services firms best prepare? So we've had legislation in the EU, which primarily deals with stable coins, which are a whole class of new crypto assets, which attempt to peg themselves to fiat currencies. And EU legislation has the travel rule. So what the travel rule is, is simply the mirroring of the legislation in fiat banking, whereby if I send you a payment, then I need to know who the money's going to. As in, you can't send it to unhosted wallets or the equivalent of Swiss unknown bank accounts. And now it's been implemented in the US and now being implemented in the EU, so trying to address how you adhere to the travel rule, various different protocols or companies or centralized pools of information for that. So I think the key thing is the travel rule and how you implement that. Then there's things like stable coins. And you saw with Luna Terra, the collapse there, people thought they had billions of dollars in something explicitly called a stable coin, which then disappeared overnight. The issue with 
Luna and Terra was that it was a kind of algorithmic stablecoin and therefore the actual underlying mechanism to determine a peg with a dollar didn't necessarily exist beyond an algorithm, right? And then also you have companies like Celsius that was functioning like a deposit-taking bank and it was taking money from retail deposit holders, paying them an interest often, and they were then investing that money in a whole range of schemes and when crypto collapsed back in February, March, April, it became insolvent. Again, people thought they had what seemed like a bank type deposit, which was then simply worthless overnight. So in terms of consumer harm, in terms of the ability for people to lose their entire life savings, there's a huge way to go before crypto becomes as stable or safe for consumers as traditional banking. And as we've seen with the recent branch services markets bill in the UK, different jurisdictions are trying to attempt to become not only capable of protecting consumers from harm, but also competing internationally for the businesses that will be the next tax base in the new global economy. And therefore, the different jurisdictions are vying to strike the right balance between consumer protection and also welcoming firms that could be taxpayers, but also might on the flip side, taint them as centers of financial services. Okay, and you mentioned that you believe that cryptocurrency firms are being used to circumvent Russian sanctions. What could lawmakers or regulators do to address that? It's very challenging to see precisely where those different sanctions are being evaded. If you've got money being moved from, say, Belarus to a crypto exchange there that's working through the domestic payment system to Bitcoin payment, which is then being effort overseas. In terms of what they can do, I'm not sure there is anything immediately apparent that they can adopt to stop that from happening. Okay, so the way to address that is to decide what to do around regulating crypto in general. If you have a payment in a crypto exchange in Russia, and that money is then moved through various different coins and is then sold in a different exchange, and it's moved anonymously via the travel, is there a way to prevent that from being used? Probably there are ways of doing it. I think that the ultimate way of doing it probably is to move towards a Chinese digital currency style system whereby the government controls and tracks every single payment and therefore you make the entire system impervious because you have complete surveillance. But it's very challenging to do that. Okay. You've mentioned this in passing already, but the UK government is in the midst of a major rethink of the UK rulebook as it disentangles the UK rules from the EU rulebook. What's your view on the financial services markets bill? Are there any reforms for the financial services space, more specifically in relation to financial crime that you think the government is missing? So the core of the bill is the change of the FCA's mandate from being solely about consumer protection to being also about competitiveness and growth, which post-Brexit is really critical. If you've lost the EU as a market, and if you've lost Russia as a market post-sanctions, then where really can you function as a global financial center if you haven't got a trade deal with, say, the US. So the core of it really is how the UK can grow and thrive post-Brexit. I don't think there's anything particularly compelling in the bill, which uh, necessarily needs to be a big step change in terms of how financial crime will be regulated or doing anything particularly meaningful post-Brexit. Okay, so it sounds like you're a little bit underwhelmed by that package of reforms proposed. Yeah, I, I think removing EU law for the sake of it without any kind of compelling change, I don't see anything particularly exciting there. I mean, 
the kind of legal mechanics of changing EU law. I, mean, I, I don't see how that helps anyone or it's particularly interesting. It just adds more complexity in terms of trying to understand another jurisdiction. Then you have more forms of regulatory and divergence, right? If you're a global firm, then you now have to understand and register in a different jurisdiction. There's no explicit benefit for them from having Brexit beyond a whole range of costs. And it's not as if they brought in a particularly exciting range of rules or legislative instruments to help them. By far, the bigger thing is things like the FCA response times in terms of it's very difficult to get assigned a case worker. Lots of the FCA staff are constantly being poached by other firms. It's more the speed of turnaround with the FCA and responsiveness from the regulator that will help them. Hopefully, by changing the mandate from being solely consumer protection to being growth and competitiveness, that should mean that companies actually get a response, right? So there's far more need, in your view, for the government to focus on doing what it can, or the Financial Conduct Authority to focus on doing what it can to improve the work of that UK markets watchdog than to pose a, a series of ambitious reforms. If I'm the FSA now, I have no incentive, if I'm told my name is consumer protection, to authorise a new crypto firm or take on a new growing sector or scheme on as an area under my jurisdiction. What you've seen under various scandals is the FCA has been heavily criticised for having people having lost all their money. The US is far more willing for people to be able to lose money. So this new regime, what it could mean is that companies want to register here because they can get licensed quickly and with good regulation and that could be their initial starting point, right? So the key question is, post-Brexit, post-Russia, what is the function of the UK as a global financial centre and where can it thrive and where can it do well? If the FCA has a competitiveness and growth mandate in addition to consumer protection mandate, and that could mean that you have a wholly new mindset in terms of proactively going after new markets or new areas and trying to build a forward-thinking and responsive regulator which will assist the kind of UK's economy rather than protecting its consumers solely. So that's a wholesale revolution in their worldview in terms of mm-hmm. that pressure. UK had it easy prior to Brexit and everyone just came here naturally, whereas now there's more pressure to be innovative. So of all the things in the bill, the only one that really matters is the ramifications of the change of mandate and how the leadership of the FCA seizes that opportunity and can attract companies from anywhere. Many of these, let's say, crypto firms are very globally footloose and they can register anywhere in the world, and they do. So on the face of it, looking down the actual list of things that they've invented in the markets bill, there isn't anything that exciting beyond this simple change in mandate. And you mentioned that the pressure is on really for the FCA to step up now in this new, more competitive environment. Also, the FCA has been going through a period of significant change and that's an impact on its staff morale. There's been a huge attrition of talent there in, in recent months and years. To what extent do you think the FCA is equipped to meet that pressure and the leadership to seize the opportunities that Brexit arguably presents? The Treasury, they announced under Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor, that UK was going to become this global crypto hub. But then you didn't see the corresponding change in mentality from the FCA because the FCA's mandate is consumer protection. And what you saw is companies like Luna and Terra result in billions of dollars of consumer losses, which is similar to this London and Capital scandal. But the bonds weren't FCA regulated. The company itself was 
um, and therefore the FCA are blamed for that, right? Similarly, the FCA doesn't like huge numbers of crypto firms because you have a scenario like Luna, like Terra, like Celsius, where taxi drivers or people who can't necessarily afford to lose their life savings, lose their life savings. And the FCA wouldn't have to be get blamed for that. And therefore, it's about balancing whether or not you take your market of consumers and allow them to be used for the development of new industries or high-risk financial services companies. It pressures on in terms of the FCA being mandated with saving the British financial services economy, when in fact it's the loss of passporting or loss of any kind of substitute for that, which puts UK at a big disadvantage. So I think, are they equipped? If not, they need more money, basically. Where could they get that from? Partly it's the levy on firms that themselves are regulated. Partly it's as a share of the tax base, right? So mm. the FCA could get more money from the government in exchange for generating more activity. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you think that'll be forthcoming? Probably not, no. Particularly if Liz Trust wants to slash taxes going forward, then spending more money on having a forward-thinking regulator that's well-resourced to be able to adequately respond to companies such that they can get regulated and set up firms in the UK rather than anywhere else and then build that centripetal force of companies coming to the UK and coming to London with high-paying jobs. That's a big challenge, right? You saw this Khalifa review, UK fintech post-Brexit last year. Very few of those changes have been implemented. Similarly, you see with the changes in stock exchange listing requirements, whereby because growth investors in the US want to pay more for high-growth fintech companies or tech companies more generally, that means that over time, you see this loss of most companies, even when they've been started here to the US because the management teams go there because of the investors are there. And so all the network effects that worked in UK's favor prior to Brexit, there's a danger that UK gets outcompeted by the US and by competing regulations like pan-European crypto legislation. So what you see is a lack of holistic, ambitious thinking, which could build a new economy in the UK in terms of what we've seen in terms of practical benefits and the articulation of those benefits and creating specific opportunities for to build companies that can seize on the underlying environment that's been created by the government that has been not articulated well or designed well or implemented well. So the post-Brexit follow-through hasn't really come at all. So it seems a pretty bleak picture ahead in your view in the UK. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's bleak in terms of the people or institutions or base that that exists. But what we haven't had is uh, the opportunities presented to entrepreneurs or people who could create companies or build the economy in the future articulated by the government. There's solely been costs created and friction created, which creates an impediment for future growth. So it's uh, not really inspiring companies to come here or to be launched here. Are you in touch with any other founders like yourselves? Are you in discussion with the government to to encourage them to inspire you and your peers? Yeah, so we have this group called FinTech Founders, which has conducted studies about a whole range of things that you could do that the government hasn't necessarily invested time or resources in discovering what those are or adequately articulating them or being able to implement them. We have various MPs come to speak. We've done various studies, but there are things like the Khalifa Review, which were conducted to help companies grow. There are things that can be done, but I don't think governments necessarily pursued them or followed through with the whole range of ideas that could be useful. Mm -hmm. What would you say top two ideas in your mind that could be useful? 
it is possible to replicate some of the kind of benefits of EU membership bilaterally in terms of being able to build things like fintech bridges, whereby you can mutually recognize different firms between jurisdictions and, and, and between countries. That was one idea that came up. In terms of immigration, we haven't necessarily seen that being beneficial to us as a company. We've simply hired overseas and people who work remotely. So I don't personally have a well-refined view on what the government could do beyond the IB to move forward, but we haven't necessarily seen things presented to us that could be useful. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. That's been a really informative conversation. I think Comply Advantage is a fascinating business. I wish you all the best in your endeavours. Thanks so much, Lucy. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.